You are listening to a Called to Communion podcast. Join us as we strive for the unity that Christ desires for His Church at www.calledtocommunion.com. Welcome to Called to Communion podcast. This is Jeremy Tate. I am really excited to uh, be interviewing Stephen Beck this evening. And uh, Stephen is a personal friend of mine, and he is a fellow resident in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, if I could just just kind of brag about Stephen for a minute before I introduce him. Stephen, I've known Stephen personally for a little over a year, and uh, in this time I've been uh, incredibly encouraged just getting to to see Stephen's um, love for Jesus Christ and now his love for the Catholic Church as well. Uh, He's a man with a brilliant mind uh, and a fierce passion for the truth. On top of this, Stephen uh, is one of the most humble believers I've ever met. He's a husband and a father to a beautiful family, and uh, I always tell people I'm pretty convinced that his oldest child is the most adorable person on the planet alive today. Before uh, Stephen's conversion, he was committed, deeply committed to the Reformed faith. Uh, he spent time as a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and then as a member of the Presbyterian Church in America. Stephen has a master's degree from St. John's College in Annapolis, and he is currently uh, pursuing a Ph.D. in the Greek and Latin program at Catholic University of America. Stephen, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much for having me. Can you uh, maybe just begin by telling us a little bit about your upbringing and uh, your formation uh, in the Christian faith? Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in uh, Tennessee, uh, in the Chattanooga area for the most part, and as far back as I remember, uh, I believed in Jesus. I was told about Jesus from uh, day one. I um, was in a Baptist household. My father was a Baptist minister uh, in the Independent Baptist Church. Um, both of my parents went to Tennessee Temple, and uh, I really had a good experience there. I, I loved Sunday school and uh, Church, uh, attending church, of course, uh, as a child, there's always days where you don't feel like going, but for the most part, I was um, never terribly resistant or anything like that. It was um, a wonderful time. I remember just learning lots of Bible stories. Uh, So many of the things I remember now, I think I should attribute mostly to my childhood education. Um, And uh, those are the things that really stick with you. So my parents just really, really loved the Lord and... um, I was uh, just, I guess, your average uh, Baptist child. I don't know if I could say that. Um, But uh, I wasn't uh, too into um, church, but I wasn't too out of church either. Um, I was uh, um, interested but not um, uh, taking things very, very seriously during my high school years. Um, I was more interested in, uh, I guess, music at the time and, um, yeah. My activities in school, my friends. I went to public school all the way through, so that that uh, was probably um, uh, formative in some ways. A lot of my friends were not Christians, but many of them were as well. Okay. Um, and then I, it wasn't really until college, my college years, I went to the University of Tennessee. Um, uh, actually, after spending uh, my freshman year at Pensacola Christian College in uh, Pensacola, Florida, which um, some of the listeners may know about it, is a uh, relatively fundamentalist-based um, uh, school. Uh, you, I mean, you have a number of different uh, persuasions there, but um, mm-hmm. 
I did spend a year there. They are sort of known for their strict rules. Um, but actually, I had a really great time there. I had wonderful roommates. Um, I can speak pretty highly of it. Obviously, I don't uh, agree with all of their doctrines at this point. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, on the whole, it was a really um, good experience. So uh, finally, um, making it to U the University of Tennessee, <clears throat> I was uh, studying computer engineering. And uh, when you study computer engineering, you don't really get a lot of humanities. Uh, you don't get a lot of um, you know, time to read either. Uh, of, of, anything you're interested in. So definitely didn't get any theology or any decent philosophy at all. Uh, okay. So it was sort of towards my latter years that I was really just put in contact with some of my friends from Texas, both Christian guys, uh, um, and we just started talking online a lot more often. Um, and one of them be had actually become a Christian in um, RUF in, uh, in Texas, Texas A&M. So... <clears throat> He started sending me all sorts of reformed literature, uh, whether it be online. I don't know. Some of the listeners may know about a website, uh, Long Gone. I think it was called Razor Mouth. I want to say, I, I could be wrong, but R.C. Sproul Jr. may have written for that site. I believe he did. Um, but in any case, it was a number of younger reformed writers uh, running a website um, okay. and uh, wrote a lot of somewhat edgy uh uh, material and I enjoyed that uh, website. Learned a lot about the Reformed faith through it, um, and then that drew me into sort of heavier materials. I guess I started pursuing two topics in particular, which I think um, any of the other people in the world who have made the Baptist to the Reformed uh, leap, um, the two big issues that come to mind are covenant theology versus dispensationalism. And then uh, the Calvinism versus Arminianism, uh, sort of two stark uh, mm -hmm. opposing opposing systems. Um, and usually, when those discussions come up, no no alternatives are presented. Are, are presented. Yeah. You either have to be in one camp or the other. Um, yeah. So in any case, those were the two big issues on my mind, and I started kind of following those tracks. Um, Let's see. So, Stephen, uh, tell us, uh, back when you were in uh, growing up in your childhood, what was your perception at that point in time of the Catholic Church? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure I had much of a perception at all. Uh, okay. During my time as a Baptist, I really didn't... Uh, I knew that there were other churches, but I really had no idea what a Methodist believed and a, you know, differently than a Baptist or okay. a Presbyterian. Well, I, I think I did hear that Presbyterians um, were often very educated and they baptized babies. I think those are about the only two things I remembered about Presbyterians. But then Catholics, even it was even more hazy. I knew that they had more ritual and that um, I think I, was, I had the impression that they believed in work salvation. Um, okay. But then there was something that didn't jive with with that, even in the early years, um, my great-grandmother, who lived in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and, and my great-grandfather, they were both uh, Catholic um, my, on my mom's side. Uh, I guess the generation below them, their children uh, left the church or, or whatever. Um, but they were just uh, incredibly like, the most loving, wonderful people in the world. And I remember my, my mother making comments to that effect many times. My great-grandmother just had this passion and, and love for others and was very selfless. And 
Um, and I thought that was awfully strange that that uh, if, if there was this church that was so bad that someone so loving could be in it. Um, so, but but otherwise, I, I didn't I didn't give that much thought. It was uh, not uh, you know uh, something really confronting me at the time. I wasn't okay. concerned about changing churches or even okay. really understanding them. So, so we're back in college, and you are getting exposed to Reformed theology, and you're, you're starting to process some of the distinctives of Reformed theology. What, what, what were kind of the distinctives of, of Reformed theology to convince you of, the, of it as truth? Right. Well, I mentioned the, the two subjects that were, I guess, of most interest to me. And I suppose the, the real, the burning question, the thing that really, that really did keep me up at night sometimes was the Calvinism versus Arminianism. Like, do we have free will? Can we do anything apart from uh, God? Like, are we able to just act when he uh, doesn't want us to or something like that? Okay. And those are not easy questions, but those are the those are the sort of I don't know this this sort of set the flame uh, a fire I think when I really wanted to find out, and so I started mm-hmm. searching the scriptures more and reading more. And um, okay. I think L- Lorraine Bettner's work, uh, the Reformed yeah. Doctrine of Predestination, I read that, um, and that was um, certainly influential on me at the time. Um, okay. So was this kind of a gradual process, or did it seem like Reformed theology just kind of clicked uh, suddenly? Or No, it was very gradual. I'm a slow mover and a relatively slow thinker, I think. So I, I don't know, it was probably over the course of two or three years. I didn't actually make the switch until um, after I graduated from college, or right around that time, okay. which would have been 2002. But I should also add another sort of uh, step in the process. Um, I right towards right, right after graduation, actually, um, I was able to go to Labrie in England, um, yeah, okay. which some of the listeners may know is a, um, a community. As the word Labrie is uh, French for the shelter uh, that was started um, out of the home of Francis Schaeffer, a man certainly influential in the PCA, uh, and. So I was able to uh, spend time there, and for those who don't know much about it, it's a, a Christian community, not at least now uh, definitively tied to a denomination where anyone can just come and stay for a time. You, know, you have to pay a little bit. You work half the day, and you um, study half the day on any topic that you want, and you always have lunches um, with other people, and you are invited to converse about what you're learning, about what you're questioning. Um, I think the mantra for the place is it's a, it's a place for honest questions and honest answers. Okay. And that was uh, a really good time. I, lo- I loved my time there. Um, I was able to really hash out questions about Presbyterian theology with some men there who were very reformed and others who, who were not at all. Okay. Uh, and it was a, a really good time um, to sort okay. of process some of that. So to, the, the answer to your your most most recent question is definitely a process. Okay. Now, now you uh, chose to, to come into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church once you embraced Reformed theology. Was that uh, just kind of circumstance, or, or were you kind of drawn to the um, you know the conservativeness of the Orthodox Presbyterian churches over the other options you might have out there? Yeah. Uh, um, at the time, I had you know, really become reformed through books. I had been reading 
a lot of books, but not actually meeting that many Presbyterians. Um, and when I started visiting the PCA, I didn't find that many people who I thought were really reformed, actually, um, and at least in the PCAs in, in Chattanooga. At least certain the people I came across, um, I don't know, um, you know, I, I mean, I know what the denomination stands for, but in general, there seemed to be a sort of Baptist leaning um, at some of uh, some of the Presbyterian groups there. Um, okay. So when I heard there was an OPC and I found out what the OPC was, um, I and I visited the one in Chattanooga a few more times. I, I felt that that was um, my home. I really I clicked with that at the time. Um, and uh, the guys there, uh, people there, were, were very serious about the Reformed faith. And um, uh, uh, there was very good teaching, wonderful preaching. Um, okay. And, uh, and I, just, I found a real uh, peer group there as well, people my age. And um, that was a really nice experience. Okay, and then, and then was it through a marriage, through uh, getting married, you, you came into the Presbyterian Church in America? That's right, yeah. I was in the OPC um, for, I don't know, a couple years, um, maybe a little longer. And uh, then um, after my time at Brie and everything, uh, that's when all that came to place. And then I met my wife, uh, Casey, um, and uh, we married, and we couldn't really agree. She didn't really, um, I guess, jive with the OPC as well. And uh, the PCA, the particular PCA that she was going to, I didn't um, find very appealing. And so we ended up at another PCA, not too far away, um, that we could agree on, uh, and uh, that uh, has very beautiful worship and good preaching. Um, so that was kind of what, what brought us there. Okay. So he here we are. You're totally uh, committed and persuaded of the truth of the Reformed faith. When uh, when did, did some of this start to crack? When did um, when did the Catholicism question first enter and start to be a question that you had to confront? That's also a good question. Um, sometime while I was still in the OPC, I was uh, considering going to seminary. Um, I wasn't sure. I, I didn't really feel called to be a pastor, but I thought I might be a teacher or go on to get some other degree. Um, so I was very seriously considering going to Westminster. Um, in Philadelphia, and they had this list of books. It was like a pre-seminary reading list, and I, just, okay. I think I just started at the top and started working down, and there's a book on church history by Paul Johnson on, on there, who uh, is a British Catholic, which I thought was a little odd um, huh, okay. uh, for that to be on the list, but um, it seems to be a pretty standard uh, level-headed history of the Christian church. As I was reading it, I actually became very interested in the Orthodox Church um, and his portrayal of it sounded um, just very intriguing to me because it seemed like it was opening a door to the past, uh, maybe a tradition that was more uh, unchanged from what the early church would look like, um, but also without some of the scary things that the Catholic Church had, like uh, popes and um, various other sort of images that the Western world has uh, given it. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think um, there was actually a, a good window of time that I was quite interested in Eastern Orthodoxy and started reading more about that. Um, and that really opened the door to my first considerations of the Catholic Church. The Orthodox, just as well as the Catholic, um, have some substantially good uh, arguments against sola scriptura, at least 
um, as it's often formulated. And that was pretty compelling for me. And it started breaking down some of the things I had uh, assumed and never uh, really noticed that they weren't, these foundations weren't really in scripture uh, itself. And that uh, really helped open the door for my first considerations of the Catholic Church, um, okay. which really came, I think, during my time at St. John's College. So That's what I was going to ask um, you about next. So yeah. for those of you who aren't familiar with St. John's, St. John's is a little art school that focuses on being through the great classics, uh, Western uh, tradition. And uh, tell us a little bit about how, how this kind of opened your eyes up to considering the claims of the church on a deeper level. In a way, it didn't at all, but in another way, it did. I think uh, I started gaining habits of, of mind and reading at St. John's. I was able to read uh, maybe uh, what someone con- some would consider threatening texts without necessarily being threatened by them, um, okay. but being able to sort of consider what they really said before making a judgment. And that was that's a very difficult thing. I, I, I still am not the greatest at it. It's very easy to prejudge um, what we read and what we um, yeah. hear. And so uh, St. John's is a wonderful place to um, to be free to question anything at all and uh, particularly read difficult works for yourself and try to understand on your own two feet uh, kind of what, what things are being um, uh, said in, in the writings. So that even that habit in and of itself, I think, helped me start to read Catholics for what they said and not just immediately shut down as soon as I heard, hear something that doesn't yeah. jive with Reformed theology, um, which was definitely my tendency. tendency yeah. so, so when did this begin to transition into, into feeling uncomfortable uh, in a Reformed church and, and starting huh. to have an itch to get into uh, either Orthodoxy or into the Catholic Church? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I think... Um, there were a couple of things, and this would actually reach all the way back to my time in the OPC. I started hearing certain sermons and certain comments within sermons that just struck me really, I guess, very hard, I guess, being strange and, and sort of against what Scripture was saying. For example, yeah. um, uh, I remember a sermon very distinctly in the OPC on the passage in, I think it's Hebrews, um, Hebrews 4 maybe, uh, about um, tasting of the Holy Spirit, but then falling away. The whole sermon, I think the title of the sermon was Warning Signs of Things That Cannot Happen. And that struck me as really strange. As why, why would the Bible, and why would Paul or anyone, writer of Hebrews, give us warnings about things uh, that could not happen? Um, it, yeah, yeah. It, on one hand, I could see if it didn't, you know, really... It, it was necessary to fit your system. It, I can see why someone would be compelled to, to think that. But it didn't really, you know, it wasn't common sense. I, re, I would really have to sort of contrive the text to come up with something like that. So yeah, that, why, that was, why all the conditionals if there's, no, uh, if there's no conditions? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Another thing I started noticing, um, I, as in my time at St. John's especially, I started gaining the habit of uh, desiring footnotes um, I, I wanted proof. I wanted, if you're going to say that so-and-so said this, you know, cite where it came from. Just you know, give, give me some, somewhere to go back and look to. And if so-and-so said this, I'd like to read it for myself. Okay. Um, I, I know that, you know, you know, both sides, Catholic and Reformed, um, shortly after the Reformation, 
it wasn't really the style to do, you know, throw footnotes. But uh, later on, um, nowadays, it is, um, and it's almost a requirement. And I noticed that the polemic literature coming from Reformed writers um, or Protestant writers at large often didn't point you to the Catholic sort of authoritative voice. They would say something about Catholic teaching on works or whatever, but there'd be no really backing to to what that claim uh, was. So that was a red flag. Um, So all these things are sort of um, adding, adding to the mix. So that's when it, I guess that's when it started becoming uncomfortable. Is really when when the the Catholic arguments were starting to jive with Scripture, um, but then the Reformed arguments were um, starting to fall apart for me. Um, and that was when I and I'm so I'm, I'm still going to a Reformed church, and I listen to the sermon, and then I hear things, and I sort of I look at the Bible, and then it's not there. Or I would sometimes notice certain sermons would. Uh, appeal to a verse, but then the very next verse or the context around it would give a total, totally different sense. And okay. so, for me, that was that was very difficult. I was starting to get frustrated with with how that worked. Okay. Um, so, what would you say would have been the first kind of main tenet of Reformed theology that, that you came to terms with, with seeing as, as biblical? I have to go with sola scriptura, and um, that really, obviously, is so fundamental that. If that yeah. falls, then the whole system falls. Some of the arguments that I read and came to understand were originally from Orthodox authors. They have a very similar view on the role of tradition, um, just the lack of a magisterium. So my studies at St. John's did include some study of the Greek language, which is, um, became very appealing to me, and I really enjoyed that, and that's why I'm studying Greek and Latin at Catholic U now. Um, yeah. So... In, in my, my Greek studies, I just became more and more aware of the Septuagint and what the Septuagint is and you know, the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, as well as uh, of the Hebrew Old Testament as well as um, some books that were added to it that the early Christians used. Um, and so the Septuagint, of course, includes what we call the Apocrypha and that was all bound together um, in one book, and that is often the Greek that Christ uh, and the apostles quote. Um, yeah. And you can, you know, pick up a Greek uh, New Testament somewhere, and usually the little citations tell you whether it, it lines up uh, with it. Um, it'll, it'll say LXX for the uh, Septuagint. And so you can see for yourself how, how often um, that book is quoted and quoted as authoritative scripture. Yeah. But then there's no there's no um, indication anywhere within the Bible um, or elsewhere that those extra books should not be considered scripture. Right. And so when when I when I realized that when I realized how sort of authoritative the Septuagint was to the early Christians, um, and that I guess the Protestant argument is that well we go with the uh, you know um, the 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 canon that Israel. Um, prefers, but that seemed a strange thing to go with the canon that non-Christians ended up using versus the actual Christian Jews, um, yeah. uh, which you know, of course included the Apocrypha. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't understand that argument very well. But it, all those things came together for me to see that not not only that, but maybe even 
more than that. Uh, the actual yeah. content of the New Testament just sort of assumes a teaching and an authoritative church um, and scriptures that need interpretation. And just the, I think that the idea of only the words, the book alone, um, may be very well tied to, to that, that time and age. It was a, maybe a precursor to the Enlightenment kind of thought. Um, so anyway, uh, those were, that, that was definitely the really biggie. The Holy Scriptura was the big one. <laughs> okay. That, Stephen, at this point in time, had you um, started to think through the possible uh, kind of catastrophic relationship um, kind of fallout that this could, that, that a move towards the Catholic Church or even the Orthodox Church could have? Were you thinking through this primarily on a the theological level at this point, or were you thinking through what could this actually mean relationally in terms of my family and my um, my, my friendships as well? Absolutely. It was uh, sort of gut-wrenching um, for the longest time. And I, I, I've i told a few people this. I, I used to just get, I think I would get headaches sometimes from, from thinking about it and being sort of just, I mean, the thought of becoming Catholic or the thought of even disagreeing with some of these uh, basic doctrines um, was, uh, it really felt at first like I was totally rejecting the faith and coming up with a new faith. And it wasn't until I just had time to pray about it and kind of uh, take a step back as long as I could um, and reflect on the fact that uh, it doesn't mean, uh, as far as becoming Catholic, it does not mean you're rejecting um, the everything of the faith that you're coming from. Yeah. Um, rather, you're sort of finishing it out and filling it out. And I didn't really understand that for probably for a number of reasons, but just the rhetoric that you grow up with um, in, a, in Protestant churches uh, that's against the Catholic Church and the, the sort of things you, you hear, uh, especially in the Reformed reform Church, is sort of more sort of vehement against uh, the errors of Rome and such. Yeah. So it was really, uh, it was hard to talk about. I would try to, I remember sort of trying to, to defend the Catholic position in Sunday school sometimes. And my Sunday school teacher knew knew what I was, um, you know, questioning and everything. And it was I would get tar- targeted sometimes for certain questions. Um, and uh, but it was not easy at all. But surprisingly, after the fact, it hasn't been as hard as I thought it would. There, people uh-huh. still, <laughs> all my family and everyone, they, they still they still love us dearly and are um, willing to talk about things. And, um, um, anyway, so that's, uh, yeah, it, it was a slow process. Well, if you could even uh, go back maybe for a minute to the Orthodox question, there's a lot of guys, uh, even right now, that are reading Holy Communion, that are reading, uh, you know, through the Church Fathers, and they're seeing that, um, there, there's a fundamental problem with Sola Scriptura, that it's not supported by Scripture, and that it's created uh, disaster and disorder and confusion uh, in Protestantism. Um, and a lot of these guys are asking this question of where do I go from here? Do I go, you know, Orthodox or do I, you know, go uh, Catholic? And um, tell us a little bit about how you thought through this and um, how you uh, eventually ended up deciding on the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's a very, very difficult one because... The Cat- I mean, the Orthodox Church is appealing for almost all the same reasons that the Catholic Church is appealing. And to the Protestant, probably a little more so because it's a little bit less offensive um, as far as not having a pope um, yeah. and, uh, and, and maybe being a little bit more mysterious and having you know, fewer 
clearly drawn answers for um, uh, doctrinal questions, which is appealing to many, I think, uh, people, especially our age these days. Yeah, so um, you, you could hypothetically be in an Orthodox communion and still hold to a version of, of, uh, of sola fide, you know, a friend of justification by faith alone, um, yeah. whereas in the Catholic Church, you know, we're, we're bound as well by the Council of Trent, where mm-hmm. uh, that's not an option. So Right, yeah. I think that this is another moment to mention St. John's. It was actually uh, a great time. I had a uh, number of friends from uh, all Christians uh, who were uh, from very different denominations, and we, we attempted a little reading group. We were going to read First Things magazine together. Um, one guy one guy was Anglican. Uh, I was the Presbyterian. There was an Orthodox uh, student and a Catholic student. So we had a, a very um, ecumenical uh, group going on there. Uh, as far as the my choice of uh, the Catholic Church over the Orthodox Church is, in a way, just because of the, what the name Catholic means. It really is universal. It really has spanned all times and all nations, all races, all tongues. And um, that's a really difficult thing to pull off. And I, I know there are yeah. there's more than one race within the Orthodox Church, certainly, but it didn't have the same uh, sort of, it doesn't seem to have the same unity or, or breadth or, or even offense. That was another thing, is it, it seems to me that's a, a, almost a bad thing to be less offensive to the world, because um, that's exactly what I would expect the Church not to be, according to scriptures, that it should be hated by the world. Not that Christians are certainly of any group um, are, are hated in certain quarters of the world and persecuted, so I don't mean to demean that in any way. So, Stephen, that, that's a great way to put it. The, the unity, uh, the timelessness of the Catholic Church and um, its cross-culturalness and not being bound to um, kind of the ethnic groups that, that a lot of the Orthodox churches are, but I really like even more what you said about the Catholic Church being the hated church and, and even identifiable because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that is, at least in my experience, it seems to be the case. Uh, definitely the sort of Western view of, of things uh, may be biased. But uh, uh, one friend of mine phrased it this way. I think he said that the Catholic Church has scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. The Orthodox Church has scripture and tradition. They don't have the third pillar. They're yeah. sort of uh, lacking in the sort of authoritative teaching ability. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't know all the ins and outs of how they're able to call councils, but I know they haven't had any ecumenical councils, you know, since. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that's a great yeah. visual picture as well, is to think about the, uh, the, the pillar of the church as, as a three-legged stool, you know, and with the right. three pillars of the magisterium tradition and scripture. Yeah. Um, Stephen, tell us uh, kind of the, the personal stuff, what's going on now. You are, you know, you've, you've crossed the point um, where you, you realize that you're going to come into the Catholic Church. Um, how, how does this go down with, with Casey, with your wife? How does this, uh, with your parents and extended family? Yeah. Uh, at first, not not very well at all. Um, it was a very um, trying time for both of us in, in our marriage uh, um, uh, my wife uh, has grown up in the PCA her whole life. Her father, my father-in-law, is a PCA elder. And so um, it kind of hit home um, in many ways. 
And as I was sort of working through these things, um, before we were married, uh, everyone knew I was kind of interested in orthodoxy, but uh, that kind of lends toward what I just said. It was sort of a non-threatening thing. Oh, yeah, he's sort of interested in this thing over here. Yeah. But I guess no one thought I would actually act on, on um, you know, the things that I'm reading and, and working through and trying to understand. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, no one expected that would turn into an interest in the Catholic Church, <laughs> certainly. And so when it did, um, I met great resistance. Um, and Tacey uh, uh, will tell uh, anyone and her friends how, how difficult it was. We had quite a few um, arguments. It was really, really difficult to talk about the issue without getting emotional. Um, yeah. that, that was, it's so difficult to talk about uh, the Catholic-Protestant relationship without, you know, tensions and emotions just you know, flaring up. And uh, the more it happened, though, the more, <laughs> the more it was able to, uh, I think, more, the more Tacey realized it wasn't just a, you know, a passing fad for me. It was, I was very seriously considering this. And she very graciously agreed to read certain things with me and, um, uh, there is at least one funny story I should share um, where she was, uh, it was probably our worst argument ever on, uh, I think it was like a Thursday night or something. And she had an, a sort of a Protestant mothers uh, for preschoolers uh, group to meet uh, on Friday morning. And it was the next morning and I actually was uh, going over to St. Mary's uh, in town from time to time just to pray. And uh, while I was there, Tacey goes to her Protestant group, but no one, no, none of the ladies show up except one girl who is a Catholic. And so she has this great conversation with this Catholic girl about, who of course was also a convert. So God really made things fall into place in some surprising ways along the way. And uh, those chance events um, running into people um, even ran into you, uh, if you remember, um, yeah. on, the, on the playground with our, with our kids. Um, and, you know, ended up going to the RCIA because of that. Um, and so, uh, or at least that one over there. <clears throat> so that's kind of how things went with Tacey and I. Ultimately, I think she read Saint, uh, the autobiogra- uh, autobiography of St. Therese, which I highly recommend to anyone um, who's uh, interested in loving Jesus <laughs> and loving others. It's just a, a, a fantastic, passionate um, work. And um, I think that work really helped her see what fruit comes from the Catholic Church. So you came in to the church on the Easter Vigil, and uh, I was blessed to be there and to watch it and to see the joy uh, on your face on your face uh, as you were received into the church. And tell us a little bit about the experience uh, of the Easter Vigil and what it was like to come into the church for you. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well. I'm not the only one who's made the comparison, but it's something like getting married again um, or getting married for the first time if you're single. It's a major commitment. It's a major statement um, as a human being in this world to uh, identify yourself with the Church of Christ and uh, make that kind of um, uh, statement of belief and uh, sort of joining yourself to this body for better or for worse, um, whether... Uh, you have a wonderful priest or not, uh, you're committed uh, and you're not going to um, really be able to go church shopping in the same, same 
way you might otherwise. But the actual experience of the vigil was just, uh, it's hard to describe it. It was really um, uh, moving in so many ways. It was wonderful, especially to see some of the candidates um, and catechumens, rather, get baptized. Um, and uh, it's, everything is, is real now. All the, the sacraments aren't symbols. They, these things are uh, happening before your eyes. And it's uh, a powerful thing. And so, well, um, Stephen, if you could just just in kind of wrapping up, what um, how would you describe for our listeners how your your relationship with Christ and your union with Him has been deepened, uh, especially through the sacraments of the Church? Mm-hmm. I guess I'd have to say that there's an overwhelming peace that wasn't there before, and when that peace is there, somehow I'm able to I, I can read scripture uh, in a non-argumentative way now. That, that was just, I think, as a Protestant, when I'm processing all these arguments, like yeah. how, sh- how should someone be baptized or, um, you know, uh, how is the Bible divided in dispensations or covenants, um, you know, uh, the big questions and the little questions. It's, it was really difficult when you're aware of those things and you can't make a decision about those things to just read the Bible in a devotional way and just feed on Christ and listen to the Word. And now that I'm Catholic, and it's not that there aren't, you know, debatable issues out there, but somehow there's a peace. I I don't have to do it alone. I don't have to figure out this stuff by myself. There is a real authority that that is trustworthy. It's kind of a phrase about theologizing all the time. Absolutely, and in a sort of counterintuitive way, you end up thinking for yourself more than you did before. At least I I feel that way. I'm not sort of on edge trying to prove something. I'm just free to meditate on it, and then I actually, you know, sort of develop my own uh, experience of of the Word, and uh, that's a really wonderful thing. Uh, And... uh, I can't speak highly enough of how just uh, I I just love going to church now. The liturgy is like to me it's like a really I know so many Protestants criticize the Catholic Church for just being repetitive, but it's sort of like choosing. Uh, this is a terrible comparison, but think of your um, maybe the best poem you can possibly imagine, and just it's something that's worth repeating. That's how I feel about the liturgy. It's just, wow, you could repeat it. You could repeat it over and over and over, and you're always going to find something new. Partly, of yeah. course, because it's so filled with scripture. There's a scripture everywhere. But uh, the, the structure to the liturgy is just, I, I'm not even close to un, unpacking that, and never will be. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, a beautiful thing, and I really love going to church. It's, that, that was one of the things that actually kind of uh, struck me in the whole process is, as I looked at Protestant and Catholic churches, I noticed Catholics were actually, especially the de- very uh, devout ones, would actually like to go to church every day and, uh, yeah, yeah. and, and participate in the Mass every single day. And uh, now I know why. I mean, it's, it's like it's, it really is food for the soul. And, yeah. um, and, uh, I think a lot of our, our listeners can relate to that, especially seminary students who are, you're in seminary and, and you're starting to understand scripture and theology and these different perspectives more, and you start, you know, picking apart sermons as you're listening and you start obsessing over them and you see holes in, in the teaching and in the preaching. And, 
And in the liturgy, you're, you're not doing that. You're uh, you're rejoicing, and you're not a. Uh, you realize that this is um, this is the song of God's people. This is the music of the church that's been passed down from the beginning. And um, yeah, it, it is a completely different experience. That's a great thing to share. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, Stephen, just in conclusion, what would you say? Um, you know, if there's something that you could put out there, you know, a lot of uh, reform guys have been kind enough to uh, to, to take time and listen. Um, what kind of uh, advice or encouragement would you want to leave them with tonight? I guess uh, this prob- this may not be um, good advice for for this audience, but um, from in my experience, the major sort of change in me was was really reading Catholics for themselves. Like I, I so so many times, I was I thought I knew what Catholics believed about one doctrine or another because I read it from maybe uh, you know some Reformed pastor's book on the topic or something like that. And it's not that they're you know completely wrong um, or or completely right. It's just that uh, I, I guess a good analogy was if you if you want to know about Calvinism, would you ask an Arminian or would you ask a Calvinist? If you want to know about Cal- Catholicism, uh, go to the Catholics and, uh, and look for those uh, authoritative writings especially. Um, yeah. And then just notice that uh, the consistency and the beauty of it from day one up until now, and you, in my experience, you read Calvin or Luther, it's just like you were, were saying, there's this argumentative uh, presence constantly. You, it's yeah. not, uh, granted, they were writing that, that kind of literature, um, but even sort of the, the commentaries on scripture, it's very polemical and very kind of angry. Um, but you can get dogmatic uh, teaching from St. Augustine without that, that feel at all. And there's, there's a love, there's a passion there that is uh, um, very different. And I think that, that that's another um, thing I would advise is just pick Catholics from random periods of time. And uh, you'll be surprised at how consistent and um, and and beautiful it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure to hear your story. Uh, the, even for myself, the first time hearing the whole thing uh, all, all the way through, and um, it's amazing to see what God's done in your life and the richer community you have with Christ now. So uh, we thank you for uh, being here tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for those of you who are listening and are coming coming here from a Reformed perspective, and we genuinely thank you for giving your time to consider the claims of the Catholic Church and to hear Stephen's story and his journey. I encourage you to, to do what Stephen did and go, go to the Catholic Church and hear firsthand, rather than secondhand, what the Church believes and what the Church teaches and the hope that she offers of deeper union with Christ. This has been a Called to Communion podcast. Join us online at www.calledtocommunion.com.